Hello, I'm Albert Sines, your door-to-door storyteller, and I'd like to give you a story. This story is called A Man Needs His Work by Nathan B. Turner. The phone rang on John's desk, and his world came crashing down. A voice crawled into his ears like a worm. We're making budget cuts. I'm sorry, but you've been laid off. Pack up your things. There was a click, and the line gave a monotone buzz. You couldn't come and see me, you coward, John said to the walls of his cubicle. For a minute, he was frozen. The tension in his hands, like the pulling of steel cables, curled his fingers into a fist, and he slammed it onto the desk. Mike, the man in the cubicle beside him, stood up and said, You got the call? John nodded. Then he went to grab a cardboard box from the break room. A man and a woman stood in the white linoleum alcove, coffee mugs in hand, leaning on the counter near the coffee pot. They were jabbering about the latest episode of American Ninja Warrior. John barreled in and they were silent. The look on his face, the look of ill-fated chance, of unemployment through no fault of his own, sent a chill across the talking man's skin. He knew that one wrong word or motion would be enough to set John off. The punished innocent have a way of being short-fused. John grabbed a box near the coffee pot. He shoved past the chattering pair and yanked it from the counter. As he stomped out, the woman tried to protest and ask for an apology. The man nudged her and drew a finger across his throat, the silent way of saying, he got the axe. Ten years at the company had given him a plethora of things to pack up or throw out. The coffee mug he'd gotten when he first signed on, throw out. The photo of his wife, taken one day when she came to visit him for lunch, keep. All the business books he'd read on the subway into town, throw out. It went like this for thirty minutes, leaving only a small pile of things he wanted to keep and bring home with him. He carried the box one-handed from his cubicle. The march from his desk to the elevator produced a crowd of onlookers. The rattle of items in the box called all his fellow workers to attention, and they stood watch over his trek down the hall. John's eyes drifted across the floor, and he saw those empty cubicles, reminders of other victims of the cuts. Nancy Smith, Jim Shaw, Bruce Stern, the empty desk stood vigil to the souls forced to brave the job market. The once proud workers who now were attempting to endure the crushing weight of their debts, bills, and families. At the end of the hall, John waited for the elevator to ding and tried to avoid eye contact with those passing by. The elevator opened and showed only one other man, Alexander, one of the executives. He looked up from his phone and acknowledged John, Sullivan. John walked past him to the back wall, objects clattering in the box. Hairs rising on his arm, John felt Alexander's eyes on him. Is he glancing back here? John thought. Is he enjoying this? John's fingernails pierced the cardboard, trying to restrain his anger. Alexander left the elevator on the fifth floor. John took it all the way to the lobby. The empty subway vibrated beneath him, and he could feel the eyes of an entire city through the windows. He was a failure, the layoff, the one who couldn't hack it. 
He'd come from his little town to make it in the big city, to scrap it out with all the other contenders for the prize. And for his efforts, the referees had dragged him from the ring, sending him to look for another fight. Out of here, kid. You're fit for a lower class. What do I tell Mary, he thought. What do I tell my wife? Sorry, honey, but we need to stretch the dollar a bit farther. I'm going to need another job. Your teaching salary will have to pay rent for this month. At least, would any of that work? The apartment was still empty when he got back. It was only one thirty, and Mary didn't get home from teaching fifth graders until at least 4.30. Three and a half hours to do nothing but dwell on his unemployment. When John set his box down, all its contents drifted to the side, following the downward slope of the kitchen table. He pulled up one of their well-worn hand-me-down chairs. They'd planned to replace them using John's Christmas bonus and sat down, elbows on the table. He thought, Do I just wait for her to get home? There's a bottle of wine in the fridge. No, we're saving that for a special occasion. What special occasion could come now? Might as well get drunk. Wait, don't I have a bottle of whiskey somewhere? Why do I just want to drink? John needed something to occupy his hands. A man needs his work, he'd always said. He'd always thought it a flaw that he couldn't use his time well without a solid commitment each day. Whether it was school, his job, a pickup basketball game, or a service at the church. John required a focal point to be productive, to keep himself driving forward. Some people found a wide-open schedule to be freeing. He found it imprisoning. A cockroach scuttled across the floor, and John leapt up to crush it. Filthy parasite, he muttered. As it crunched beneath his shoe, he realized he would have to clean it up. Can't just let the corpse sit there, he thought. He looked around and saw how filthy the apartment was. The sink was caked with grime. The bathroom was riddled with mold and soap scum. The pantry could use reorganizing. The apartment was always hard to keep clean, and he and Mary were so busy worrying about how to make the rent that they struggled to take care of the place. He had found his work. The broom, mop, and bucket were stored in a closet near the bedroom and cleaning supplies were stowed under the kitchen sink. He collected them in the center of the apartment and triaged each room to decide the top priorities. Bedroom, fourth, just needed a sweep and a dusting. Living room, third, dusting and the sofa needed deep cleaning. Kitchen, second, roach carcass and sink grime. The bathroom was the first priority. He took a long overdue scan of the shower and was shocked not to find something growing and squirming on the fake porcelain. The mold was caked, the soap scum was thick, and the small window beside the shower was slabbed with hair and grime and unimaginable filth. He strapped on the gloves, grabbed the harsh chemicals, and went to work. Mary got home around 5 p.m. By then, John was soaking the homemade cleaning formula into the sofa. She walked into the apartment and saw the box on the kitchen card table. John was engrossed in the sofa. So do I put a spot of formula on each stain or just soak a cloth and dab it? She heard him ask himself.
He didn't even notice her walk in. Why is he back so early, she thought, and why is he cleaning the sofa? Typically he's too beat to do anything. She looked in the box. Her photograph topped the pile of sundry items, and she knew the answer. John had told her about the layoffs that were traveling around the company, but John's dismissal came as a shock. He was a valuable employee, closing several big negotiations and helping to clear some financial scrapes. At one of the company functions, a higher-up had whispered to her that John had executive potential. So she thought. Why would they let him go? John turned from the sofa, the bottle of cleaning formula still in his hand, and saw her. Her deep blue eyes pierced the dim light. He dropped the bottle of cleaning fluid on the floor and walked over to her, removing the rubber gloves from his hands. Each step was an attempt to think of the right words, but by the time he reached her, he had nothing. He just dropped his head onto her collarbone and wrapped his arms around her. He felt like crying, but no tears came. He remembered his father's words. Crying is only acceptable at funerals, son. Anything less, a lost girlfriend, a lost game, a lost job, is not worth the tears. Pick up and move on. Did they tell you why? Mary asked. Budget cuts, he said into her shoulder, muffled by her blazer. That's all they said. He sniffled and tightened his arms around her waist. The cowards. The clock on the wall caught Mary's eye. The three hands formed a broken cross and reminded her of the test she took at work. Positive. Tell him, she thought. Don't hide it. John, I've got some news. He pulled his head away from her shoulder and looked into her eyes. Don't tell me they fired you too. Mary's lips seemed confused, trying but unable to resist smiling as she shook her head. No, I'm six weeks late, John. John was approaching anger. He'd have leapt for joy if Mary had told him this yesterday. Damn it, he said, pulling away from her. He faced the stained and soaking couch, turning away from Mary. He kicked the bottle of cleaning solution, spilling it across the floor and the wall. That's just fantastic timing, isn't it? Calm down, John, she shouted. I'm pissed, Mary. Can't I show it? You get angry and you can be foolish. He rubbed his forehead, stretching his hand wide enough to rub his temples. The blood was rushing to his head and he was starting to overheat. Have you taken a test yet? Yes, she said, throwing her purse on the table and sitting down. It was positive. She looked around and saw how clean everything was. It seemed like the first time she'd seen the kitchen floor not covered in a dusty grime. You've been busy, she said. John shrugged. Nothing else to do. He took a seat in the old chair across the table from Mary, avoiding the splintering wooden arm. The lamp overhead cast a ring of fluorescent light around the two of them and cast shadows across their faces. It reminded John of a police interrogation room he'd once seen in the movies. So what now? We have a child, she said. You sure about that? Mary's face dropped, lengthening the shadows under her eyes and drawing out the wrinkles near her lips. 
Yes, she said, teeth burying over the edge of her bottom lip. I'm sure. We can't go back home, Mary, he said. I can't go back to Reddington. I'm not going back to Indiana. I don't want you to have to, but how long can my salary keep us here? We're already living too cheaply to downsize. Her head was perched on top of her palm, slouching towards John, but separated by the table. This place is a broom closet, and we can still barely afford it. I can find another job, John said. Or I can go back to working construction. You did that once with your office job, and we were still barely getting by. It's something, though, isn't it? John, Reddington may be our only option. John took a deep breath and ran his fingers through his hair. Some locks flew forward on the backswing, and he saw gray strands among the black. Worry, worry, he said, smoothing his hair back. Can I take a day to think about it? Of course. Mary leaned back in the chair and gripped the table with her fingertips. We can cover the rent for this month, but we'll need some plan soon. John got up from the table. I'm going for a walk. Clear my head a bit. I won't be long. He went to the closet and grabbed his coat. His foot nudged a lockbox on the floor. The box held a gift from his paranoid father. A short barrel revolver. A Saturday night special. He'd only taken it out once to arrange to test and clean it. Still, could be helpful, he thought. Walking the street, his hair seemed grayer reflected in the shop windows, even in the dim light. The street outside the apartment was covered with neon signs for cheap Chinese and pizza. Better than strip clubs and massage parlors, he thought. The city didn't seem so glamorous here. He remembered the clean farm air and how deeply it ran through the blood. He took a deep slug of city air and wanted to spit it out. It was awful stuff. But he had come here looking to win the prize. He wasn't going to give up. Not now. Mary was undressing for bed when he returned. You feeling all right? She asked. She was pulling a brush through her long blonde hair, yanking out loose strands. Yeah, he said. Just tired is all. We both are. They climbed into bed and lay next to each other, trying to think of something to say. After a length of silence, Mary said, Want to talk about it more tomorrow? Tomorrow, John said, turning from her and closing his eyes. He was already planning tomorrow morning. Sleep didn't come that night, despite hours of attempts. John cycled through the night, turning and opening and closing his eyes until the first cracks of dawn told him that it was useless. Get up, he thought. Make coffee. The coffee pot started brewing as he grabbed what he needed. Ball cap, jeans, jacket, mask, and gun. If he didn't shave and must up his hair, he could pass for a janitor. Just don't let anyone look too close at you, he thought. He turned in the mirror to ensure that the gun didn't create a bulge in his breast pocket. There was a slight lump, but it was manageable. Looks like a wallet, he told himself. A bulging wallet full of receipts. John chugged the coffee and burned his throat. Crossing the threshold, he stole one last look at Mary through the bedroom doorframe. He told himself that he was doing this for her. 
The subway was almost empty into the city. Thank God, he thought. He could still feel the eyes of the metropolis on him, the callers and cheats and scoffers who had told him to leave. They were silent now, unable to tell him off. He smiled to think what they'd do once he turned the tables on them. I'll steal from the thieves, he thought. The alley behind the office building was dimly lit, only enough to let the janitors and shipping men find their way to their entrances. John switched the gun from his breast pocket to his side jacket pocket and snuck along the wall, avoiding the street. The desk jockeys were showing up for work. He went into the parking garage near the building and rode the elevator up to the top floor where the C-suite parked. He wanted Alexander, the executive who couldn't look him in the eye on the elevator yesterday. He saw his reflection in the shiny brass floor. Don't look up, he thought. Don't look at the camera. He skirted his gaze left and right, avoiding the eyes of his reflection. His hand shook in his jacket pocket as he held the gun. Could I scare him enough? He thought. What if he fights back? What then? The jingling ringtone of his phone sang out from his breast pocket. His hand jerked from his side pocket, almost pulling out the gun. He fumbled with the phone, only to see Mary's number on the screen. Hello? You left the lockbox open. What are you planning? Going to get my job back, he said. You're not thinking straight. Come home. Don't go and do something stupid. I have to try. I'll do anything. I need to be able to support you. This isn't about me, she said. This is about your pride. Or did you forget that we're supposed to help each other? I don't need any help. I can make this work. The bell dinged and the elevator door opened in front of him. Top floor. C-suite parking. I've got to go. I'll talk to you later. Wait, don't go. He closed the phone and forced himself over the elevator threshold. The roof parking lot was wide open, only twelve spots for a football field's worth of concrete. His scanning eyes saw that Alexander's red Ferrari hadn't arrived yet. All the other executives drove black cars, but this guy loved to brag about his red, shiny convertible. John had seen him driving it through downtown, blowing red lights. John took a spot in the shade of the elevator, away from the cameras, focused on the center of the lot. His watch showed 7.45. Time to wait. Time to think. What do I say? Give me back my job? Should I say my name? How do I get him to comply? He's going to walk off this roof and have nothing to hold him to his word. What if he recognizes me? recognizes my voice. What then? What if he calls the police? What about Mary? What about the child? It was the first time he thought of his child. Was this job worth risking not being there for his child? We're supposed to help each other, Mary had said. I'm trying to help, John thought. Trying? A motor echoed from the parking garage below. He's coming. John thought. The engine revved, coming up the ramp and slowed at each flat stretch. John's hand reached into his side pocket, cradling the gun and working his finger across the trigger guard. The motor came closer, that incessant revving and slowing. John thought, Do you need to gun it that much, you little brat? The first glint of red sparkled around the bend. The flash almost blinded John as he stole a glimpse around the corner of the wall. 
He pulled the mask from his pocket and opened it up. He thought, You put on the mask and that's it. You're doing it. You'll end up in prison. The black mask was a black hole, pulling him towards the point of no return. He shuddered, unable to force it over his head. The motor cut and the door slammed. Hard-soled shoes tapped on the concrete, ticking down the seconds until John's chance was gone. He wanted to appear confident. You rush too much and you look like you're begging, he thought. Aren't you begging? The gun felt heavy in his pocket. Alexander grew in his vision as he stepped around the corner, and John still didn't have any words. The executive was looking away, over the rooftops, looking, it seemed, for more worlds to conquer. John took his position in front of the elevator, making himself unavoidable. Alexander's suit was tailored tight on his frame, a showpiece for a showman. He turned his head and said, Ah, Sullivan! The smile across his lips seemed waxy, melting away by the second. So good to see you! What are you doing up here? Two options, John thought. Talk or swing at him. I'd like to know why you cut me. Wasn't that explained? Alexander said, reaching into his breast pocket. He pulled out a silver cigarette case. I should have thought HR would have told you already. They just said budget cuts, but that can't be all it is. Alexander placed a cigarette between his teeth. The flame shot from the lighter and smoke spurted from his lips. To keep you, we'd have to cut one of the executives. We couldn't figure out who. John tightened his grip on the gun in his pocket. Each word stabbed through his teeth. Because you couldn't figure out who to cut, you left me and my wife out in the cold? The cigarette bopped up and down as the executive spoke. Didn't know you were married, Sullivan. Didn't know or didn't care. Alexander shrugged his shoulders. So why are you here? Want your job back? I was on the executive track, wasn't I? Cutting me seems a bit foolish. We had counted on one of the older boys croaking sooner. Can't cut one of them loose, but we had to lighten the load. It's all about protecting the top, isn't it? Alexander shrugged. Do you have an answer for me? John asked. His voice echoed against the low walls of the parking lot. What do you want from me, Sullivan? You're not getting your job back. Why not? I've worked for you for years. I've saved your skin more times than you can count. You're still replaceable, Alexander said, spitting out the spent cigarette. No, I'm not. How about I go to your competitors? Tell them about your financial difficulties. Tell them where to stick the knife if they want to hurt your company. You know just how illegal that is, Alexander said. Our lawyers would have you locked up before sundown. How am I the criminal here? You're the crook, the way you throw people aside. There's no law against firing a family man. Alexander's lips cut a smile like a fresh red wound across his face. I don't think you understand how weak your position is right now. John's fingers inched towards the gun. Scare him. Try to give him the shivers, he thought. Alexander cocked his head towards John's drifting hand. You have something in that pocket you want to show me? The gun glinted in the sunlight as John slipped it from his pocket. He held it at his side, reluctant to even try to threaten Alexander with it. He can afford to call the cops, John thought. 
I can't afford to be arrested. You really brought a gun? Alexander chuckled and started walking towards the elevator. You're cute. John stepped in front of him. I'm not kidding around, Alexander. You really intend to threaten me? You want this job that much? My wife is pregnant. What a shame. John's hand tightened on the gun's grip and his finger inched towards the trigger. Haven't you been desperate to make sure you could take care of your wife? No, never been married. What? John loosened his grip on the gun, his anger drifting away from him. Never been married, Alexander repeated. And I'm shocked that you are. No married man in this company works like you. They all spend too much time with their families. You came running day or night. The others never did. I had to make a living, didn't I? That's not making a living. That's being cutthroat. That's wanting to be in charge. That's wanting to run the show. Mary's words echoed in John's head. Have you forgotten that we're married? How many times had John left her alone? How many times had she asked for him in the night and he hadn't been there? How many times had she cried in the dark without him? She'd been there whenever he had asked, and many times before he had asked. He'd been there for Alexander and the company when they needed him. He'd often left Mary alone and run for the office, never asking if she needed him to stay. He slipped the gun back in his pocket, and the whole right side of his body seemed to bend with its weight. He was burdened by the thought that he was willing to kill for his job, but unable to even take a day off for his wife. What are you doing, Sullivan? Going home, John said. You aren't worth my time. He turned his back on Alexander and headed for the ramp leading to the street, waving the back of his hand towards the executive as a goodbye and a casting off. Alexander's voice echoed across the lot. You can use the elevator, you know. I've got legs, John thought. Might as well use them. He walked down the ramp, footsteps echoing in the garage and dampening once he reached the crowded street. The gun was loose in his pocket. He barely wanted to touch it. John passed by the subway station, heading towards the river that ran through the city center. The water rushed under the bridge, dividing John's old work from his growing family. Slipping his hand from his pocket, he dangled the gun from his finger and dropped it into the water. The rushing water muffled the distant splash. John just kept walking. He walked all the way to his apartment, feet pounding the miles of uniform concrete, and, for the first time in years, he yearned for the wild grass of home. He felt like he was emerging from a dream, a rushed and horrifying dream of long nights, bad coffee, and fearful anxiety. Every hour of sleep he'd missed, every pounding heartbeat, and every drop of sweat he'd wasted trying to secure the praise and admiration of Alexander came creeping back from the shadows, reminding him of how exhausted he was. By the time he reached the stairs of his apartment building, his legs dragged and dropped like iron chains with each step. His couch welcomed him, sucking him into its cushions. The apartment seemed too cramped to be the same place he'd left that morning. When Mary came home, she found John poring over a computer screen. Where's the gun? she said. 
He didn't even look up from the screen. Threw it in the river. Couldn't stand having it in my pocket. Mary saw a folded newspaper on the counter. The classified section was dotted with black circles around job listings. Looking for a job still? Yes. So what happened earlier? I woke up, John said. He stopped looking at the screen and glanced up at Mary. Do you like living in the city? That's an odd question. She tossed her purse on the freshly cleaned sofa and threw herself on the cushion, splaying herself across the cushions. John's head turned, eyes following her as she collapsed on the couch. You feeling all right? Mary asked. Answer the question, please, John said. She turned and stared at the ceiling, biting the inside of her lip as she thought of how to phrase the answer. I get tired of the smog and the smoke and all the noise. I miss the feeling of dirt under my feet. Her hand crept over her belly, already cradling the life growing within her. And I want our little one to have the same things we had growing up. Mary turned her head, meeting John's already intense gaze. But I know you love it here. I'm not sure if I love it. I know I could do with a change of scenery, John said. Why didn't you ever say something before? Because I wanted to support you. And eventually I got tangled up here with teaching school. She glanced over his shoulder and saw the computer screen emblazoned with the name of their hometown newspaper. She tipped her head to the screen and said, John, what are you doing? He glanced at the screen. If you want to move, we can move. I'm sure you can teach back home. I'll find something back there, too. What about the company? I don't work for them anymore. John rested his elbow on the table and laid his head in his palm. So we can go. We don't have a place to live back there. Then that's step one, John said, rising from his chair. He grabbed the folded newspaper and started looking through the circle job listings. The pen in his hand scrawled over the newsprint. The next job might get us enough money for a down payment. Mary stood in front of him, pushing the newspaper away from his eyes. Why the change of heart? Yesterday you wouldn't leave for anything. Like I said, I woke up. John saw the strange glimmer of confusion in her eyes. Even he was confused about what had happened. He only knew that his old job was over. I don't work for the old company anymore, he said. And who do you work for? John poked his finger on Mary's nose. You! He rested his hand on her belly. Him or her, and that's enough work for any man. Mary's lips spread in a tentative smile, nervous but happy. Do you have any idea what's going to happen next? Nope, but we can figure it out together. Or have you forgotten we're married? Never. Will you ever forget? Not anymore. You just listened to A Man Needs His Work by Nathan B. Turner, read to you by your door-to-door -door storyteller, Albert Sines. Thank you for listening. Used by We Are One Body Audio Theater, with the permission of the licensor granted under a copyrighted license agreement. A production of We Are One Body Audio Theater.